Step into the hidden corridors of the past with Hometown History, where every episode uncovers the untold stories and secrets nestled in the streets and alleys of our own backyards. We bring history to life, revealing the extraordinary in the ordinary, from local legends to forgotten tales that shape the communities we know today. Tune into Hometown History and embark on a journey through time, right from where you are. Hey everyone, we're back! Unspookable spent last season exploring the stories behind the scares. Asking questions like, who was behind the hashtag Charlie Charlie challenge? Why do we associate Ouija boards with demons and devils? And how did Slenderman become a modern urban legend? This season, we're looking at things from a different angle. What are the scares behind the stories? The creatures that we know and love that occupy fantasy, science fiction, tabloids, and other pop culture. Do we really know where they came from? Do we know how their stories have changed over centuries? And most importantly, do the creatures from our most beloved stories that we see as innocent and friendly, or even that we feel have wants and needs that make them almost human, are they actually much more sinister than that? On this episode, we'll talk about the wonderful, strange, and sometimes creepy history of The Mermaid. I'm Elise Parisian. Welcome to Season 2 of Unspookable. A mermaid is like a fish and a human, basically. They have tails of a fish, and they have human bodies. If mermaids were real, mermaids would have tails, and they would have beautiful hair. In books, I've seen pictures of mermaids with no shirts on, um, and they had a... Have really long hair in front of their face and, and stuff. She has long hair and a fishy tail and a purple top. Some of them have scales on their sides and their arms and have like frog fingers where it has like webs in between their fingers and then they have a tail and a lot of times it's blue or green. Some can be creepy and some cannot. And they'd have some, the ones that are not creepy would have tails and have um, beautiful colored scales. And the, the creepy ones would have dark scales and skeleton bones. The way that she's a mermaid is she like collided with a fish by jumping in a lake all of a sudden. She turned into a mermaid. When you hear the word mermaid, what do you think of? Maybe Ariel from the Disney classic? Or a mermaid in another movie or TV show? Maybe you think about those flippers and tails that everyone seems to want these days. Yes, even I have a mermaid tail blanket. Mermaids have enjoyed a popular resurgence in this past decade, with mermaid characters in all types of media and mermaid merch for kids and adults alike. 
These days, we like to think of mermaids as radiant creatures with shiny, colorful tails and sparkling personalities. But have mermaids always been like this? What if I told you that the history of mermaid stories from all over the world includes some that are, well, not so friendly? In many of these stories, mermaids can be sly, eerie, or sometimes downright dangerous. But before we get to that, we have to go back even further. Where did mermaid stories come from? How have they evolved over time? And is there any evidence to prove that mermaids really exist? Let's start at the beginning, or at least as far back as we can guesstimate. The first recorded example of a mermaid-like creature comes from Mesopotamia, between 5000 and 4000 BC. Mesopotamia is the name given to a region of land between the Tigris and Euphrates river systems. Thousands of years ago, this area was home to multiple ancient civilizations. Now we know that region as Western Asia, and it includes parts of the modern-day countries of Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Syria, and Turkey. Since about 10,000 BC, the fertile land in this area made it possible for some important developments in human history, like some of the first examples of growing grain crops and early examples of written language. The Sumerians, Assyrians, and Babylonians who lived in Mesopotamia all worshipped a water god, sometimes known as Ea. Ea was responsible for all the flowing water that humans relied on, and was often depicted as a half-goat, half-fish creature, much like the modern-day figure used for the astrological sign of Capricorn. But it was Ea's messenger, Oans, who most closely resembles what we might call a mermaid, or perhaps a merman in this case. Oans is said to be half-man, half-fish, who was sent by Ea from the deepest depths of the water up to the surface of the river to teach humans writing, arts, and sciences. Like many versions of mer stories from around the world, Oans represents knowledge shrouded in mystery, a wisdom that is deep like the waters that it came from, and older than human memory. Around the same time, versions of a story about a goddess who became half-fish entered into the mythology of ancient Syria and other regions of the Near East. Atargatis, sometimes known as Atarate, or Durketo, was a goddess of fertility and a protector to those who worshipped her. In one legend about her, sometimes disputed by different ancient historians, it is said that she had a baby with a mortal man and became so distraught that she tried to flee her city by jumping into the river. She was transformed into half-woman, half-fish, and lived on forever in that form. In better-known Greek mythology, first recorded around 700 BC, the god of the sea Poseidon had many children who were more people of various kinds. Triton, son of Poseidon and Amphitrite, was half-man, half-fish, and carried a trident and a conch shell to control the ocean's waves. He had the power to sink ships at the direction of his father, or, if sailors displeased him, he could change the weather on a whim. Later, when the Romans adapted Poseidon into their own version of a sea god called Neptune, he also had a merman named Triton for a son, who had similar powers. Today, when we think about these creatures, we are often thinking about mermaids. But for thousands of years, most stories of mer-creatures were usually about mermen, and powerful ones at that. It seems like most of the mermen in these ancient myths we just talked about were wise and brave and could control the sea. 
While in the one example we have of a mermaid, she was given her fishtail as a punishment. So where are all the awesome stories about power women who just so happen to be half fish? Well, maybe you and I can write them ourselves. I think mermaids could be real, but they can't. Because I am kind of scared of mermaids ever since I watched this video of a mermaid shown on sea. And it was a skeleton of one, but I think someone put it there. After a lot of research, I do not think mermaids are real. I think mermaids are real because... I think that you could find them in the middle of nowhere of the ocean because that's where it's very deep and they want to hide in their cove. I would want to meet a mermaid and I I have before. I've met a mermaid, but knowing that mermaids aren't real, I'm really disappointed now that I'm thinking about it. (laughs) That like when I was little, I was like, Oh, we're at the Renaissance Festival, and there's a mermaid. It's re- It looked so real. And now, you know what's funny. Over the thousands of years since these origin stories, mermaids have evolved in all sorts of ways. In European or Western culture, when we say mermaid, we often mean a being with an upper body of a human woman and the lower body of a fish with some sort of flipper-like fins coming off the bottom of the tail. The word mermaid is a combination of the Old English word mare, meaning sea, and maid, meaning a young girl or woman, usually assumed to be unmarried. But Old English was a version of English used only in specific parts of the world, and only from about the years of 400 to 1500. So for much of history, in many other cultures, the word mermaid doesn't really have the same meaning, or bring to mind the same imagery as it would for a Western audience. Before the word mermaid existed, people were talking about creatures called sirens. First mentioned in the Greek epic poem The Odyssey, sirens are creatures whose beautiful singing voices cast a spell over any sailor who hears them, making them jump from the safety of their ships often to their deaths. In the Odyssey, Odysseus is able to resist the sirens only by tying himself to his ship as he is sailing past and having his crew plug their ears with beeswax. The interesting thing is, around 750 BC, when the Odyssey was written by the poet Homer, people described sirens as half-bird, half-woman, creatures that lived on rocky outcroppings or small islands at sea. But for some... The word siren has also come to be associated with creatures that are half fish, half woman, and live in the sea. Though their physicalities may be different, some are described as part bird or part fish, or even part snake, there seems to be a common fear from sailors of lots of cultures that these mysterious, deadly women could be lurking somewhere out at sea, waiting for them. Around the first century AD, Back when the years were only in the double digits, the Roman scholar Pliny the Elder compiled an encyclopedia called Natural History. In it, he describes the existence of nereids, half human, half fish, but with rough scales still covering the human features, not smooth skin like we may think of today. He also goes on to describe sea elephants, 
and sightings of other aquatic creatures that would have been, in his time, as rare a sighting as an actual mermaid. This type of documentation continued well into the Middle Ages and beyond. People knew hardly anything about the ocean and what it contained. For a long time, people believed that there were other species of humans or humanoid creatures that lived in the sea. They also thought that the ocean contained versions of land creatures adapted for water. So just like there could be sea elephants or sea turtles, there could be sea humans. By the 1400s and the dawn of the Exploration Age, when European countries began sailing ships to colonize other people's land, there were many scientific and artistic illustrations that showed combinations of fish and human. Some had only the face of a person, but the rest of the body of fish. Some looked part dolphin with the head and neck of a human. And some resembled what we might now think of as a mermaid, but they had tons of different fins and flippers coming out all over their bodies. There were humanoid creatures with tentacles, oversized eyes and bulbous heads, creatures with all colors of hair, some with sharp webbed claws and teeth. Since those early days of ocean science, we now know a lot more about who lives in the sea. It's likely that when sailors first caught sight of manatees or porpoises or squid, and didn't have a chance to look at them closely before they disappeared under the waves, they let their imaginations run wild. They related these creatures to humans, or created human-like monsters because they simply couldn't conceive of a species like a narwhal existing. And it wasn't just European explorers who were thinking about mermaids. Different types of mermaids pop up in stories from all over the world, with lots of variety from region to region. The collection of Middle Eastern folktales called 1001 Nights, often known in English-speaking countries as Arabian Nights, includes many stories of sea people. In one tale, a sea girl and her people are identical to humans, except they can breathe and live underwater. Another story describes mermaids as having moon faces and hair like a woman's, but their hands and feet were in their bellies, and they had tails like fishes. In Russian folklore, Rusalki are the spirits of women who have died in water, who often turn evil because of the tragic circumstances under which they died. Their souls live on forever in the bodies of mermaids who seek revenge by trying to drown men and children. The Rusalka are a type of siren. They lure you in with their beauty and their soothing voice. But once you get close enough, they will try to hold you underwater until you drown. The Ningyo of Japan are sea monsters that can take various forms. The lower body of a fish with the upper body of a monkey, the whole body of a fish with the face of a human, and many other combinations. They often have grotesque, razor-sharp teeth and are terrifying to behold. But if you're lucky enough to catch and cook one, it is said that eating their meat will give you eternal life. Another Japanese myth tells of Nure Ona, who has the face and hair of a woman, but the body of a snake. Nure Ona sits by the seashore, hiding her lower half and cradling a bundle to trick humans into thinking she's a mother holding a baby who needs help. Once someone gets close to try and help her, Nure Ona uses her long, pointed tongue to drink their blood before returning to the sea. In parts of Western Africa, present-day countries including Togo, Senegal, Nigeria, and Ghana, water spirits known as Mami Wata are often depicted as part woman, part fish, or sometimes part snake. 
These spirits take many forms and have roots in regions all over the continent of Africa, with different meanings for different cultures. Sometimes, Mami Wata could be blamed if a woman is unable to have children, if someone comes down with a long illness, or if somebody suddenly disappears while out on the water. But her connection to water is also said to give her healing powers, and there are legends of Mami Wata spirits kidnapping humans to take them to the underwater spirit realm. Another more terrifying folktale comes from Scotland. It is said that in the strait of water that separates mainland Scotland from the smaller islands, the blue men of the Minch appear. They often look human until a sailor would get too close and see the blue tint of their skin, their long, strange features, and hands and feet that were webbed for swimming. The blue men were rumored to present a ship's crew with impossible riddles or tasks, where the price of failure was the destruction of the ship and the drowning of the whole crew. Some even say that unsuspecting sailors could be dragged into the water and eaten. Like the ones we just heard, many of the tales of human-like water creatures tend to tap into both our fear of and respect for the ocean and other bodies of water. Water contains life-giving power, but it also contains the unknown. Just like the ocean can be calm and nurturing one minute and dangerously stormy the next, A mermaid can appear friendly and kind one minute, only to flash sharp fangs and carry you away underwater the next. A little different than how we might like to imagine mermaids, right? Of course, there is one reference that provides a lot of our imagery for how a mermaid is supposed to look and act. We've heard of mermaids like Ariel. (laughs) I've heard of the little mermaid. That's all the mermaids I've heard of. Emily Winstrap. Um, it's a big book series. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, like, adventures. Yeah, it's just, like, a big adventure series, and mm-hmm. it's really good. I don't really know, like, that much, like, names of mermaids, but, like, I've seen so many, like, mermaid shows and movies, though. A lot of how we think about mermaids today comes from images of the most famous mermaid of all. Do you know who I'm talking about? That's right, Ariel. But did you know that in the story the Disney movie is based on, the mermaid isn't even given a name? Long before it was a Disney classic, The Little Mermaid was a short story first published in 1837 by Danish author Hans Christian Andersen. Translated into English around 1845, it quickly became a popular hit, printed in magazines all over the world. Many of us will remember how in the Disney version, Ariel wants to become human at first because she loves human inventions and is fascinated by people. Then, once she falls in love with Prince Eric, her longing to have legs and live on land becomes even more consuming. In Anderson's story, the unnamed mermaid does fall in love with Eric, But more than anything, she wants to become human to be able to marry him and gain a human soul. Her grandmother tells her that even though mermaids can live for 300 years, when they die they will turn into sea foam. But for humans that believe in God, their souls will live on forever and many of them will go to heaven. The mermaid wants nothing more than to possess an immortal soul. So she goes to the sea witch, who in this version is not evil 
The witch gives the mermaid the potion to turn her into a human in exchange for her voice simply as a fair trade, warning her that it will bring her nothing but pain. Once in her human form, the mermaid and the prince spend time together, and though he comes to care for her, he ends up getting engaged to a princess from a neighboring kingdom. The mermaid's heart breaks, and she prepares to die. But then her older sisters cut off all of their hair and trade it to the sea witch for a magical knife. The sea witch tells the mermaid that if she kills the prince with the magic knife and his blood drips on her feet, her tail will grow back and she can go back to being a mermaid. She refuses to spill his blood and she dies. But because she wanted to do good and wanted to have a soul, she is rewarded by becoming a spirit of the air. In some ways, the original version of the story that we've come to know and love is not very kind at all to its heroine. Not only does she not have a name, but there is no happy ending. For Anderson, The Little Mermaid was a symbol meant to teach the people that read the story how good it was to believe in an immortal soul, and that young women should want that more than anything else. Instead of Ariel fearing Ursula like in the Disney version, really her biggest fear is death avoided only by gaining a soul. So, why did Anderson want to use a young woman character to teach this lesson? Why do we see so many differences between the ways that male mer-creatures are described and the way female ones are? Although there are male sea monsters for sure, in the stories about mermaids, there is often an emphasis on their physical appearance and that they are trying to trick men into falling in love with them. It is often said that sailors on long journeys with only men on board would naturally enjoy making up stories about beautiful, mysterious women to pass the time. But in addition to a fear of the sea, could these sailors have also been tapping into a fear of female power? No matter what we think about why humans came to believe in or tell stories about mermaids in the first place, it's clear that many people across religion and nationality and in all parts of the globe have had the idea that a creature like this could exist. In so many examples, it seems that humans are trying to define for ourselves what exactly is human. Mermaids can often be described as being trapped between two forms. And in many uses of mer-creatures in literature, from Peter Pan to Harry Potter to The Little Mermaid herself, it is longing for something human, or wanting to forcibly take that humanness that often drives the mermaid's actions. Does creating hybrid beings like this somehow help us know who we are, or know why we should want to be human in the first place? Like with so many myths, legends, or scary stories, sometimes we want to believe so badly that we find proof of existence where there isn't any. In the late 18 and early 1900s, Americans and Europeans flocked to carnivals and sideshows for entertainment. Often, these were places where the people and animals who worked in them were mistreated, and the paying customers were tricked out of their money. A popular exhibit at a lot of these shows were displays of supposed mermaid remains as proof that they existed. The most famous example was at P.T. Barnum's Fiji Mermaid, first shown in 1842 in New York. Barnum, most recently played by actor Hugh Jackman in the musical The Greatest Showman, claimed it was the remains of a mermaid 
caught near the Fiji Islands. He circulated thousands of pamphlets across the country and planted stories in newspapers about mermaids in general and his specimen in particular to get people to buy tickets. It is believed that the Fiji mermaid was actually the upper skeleton of a monkey with bared teeth sewn into the tail of a large fish. But by the time most people got in front of the exhibit to decide for themselves, Barnum already had their money. And though many people have claimed to have similar proof in a variety of hoaxes, no credible scientific evidence has been found that indicates mermaid-like creatures exist. Although, who's to say we really know what swims in the deep? More than 70% of our planet is covered in water, and scientists estimate that only about 5% of that has been explored or mapped. Sure, we think we know a lot about the land masses on our planet, and a lot about the surface of the oceans, since researchers and explorers have charted courses all over the globe, but we don't really know what's underneath. Maybe exhausted and malnourished sailors crossing the ocean on sailing ships hundreds of years ago just imagined they saw beautiful women with tails, when really they were seeing dolphins. Or maybe they weren't imagining things at all. Maybe mermaids exist, and we'll just never have proof. Of course, it's hard to know all of the different stories which might prove to be true. Let's say you were down by the water one day, and you did see a mermaid. Would you be lucky enough to meet a mermaid as kind and friendly as we imagine Ariel to be? Or would she be something else? Thanks for listening to Unspookable. I'm your host, Elise Parisian. This episode was written by Eleanor Riley Condon, produced and edited by Nate Dufort. Our theme song and additional music composed by Jesse Case. Our logo was created by Natalie Kewen with episode artwork by Sarah Stitches. Special thanks this week to our guests Al, Bella, Blythe, and Olivia. Are you enjoying the show so far? Make sure to tell your friends. You can also leave us a rating and review in your podcast player of choice or share an episode on social media. Speaking of social media, did you know that Unspookable is on Twitter? Look for us at I'm Unspookable. Have an idea for a future episode? Want to reach out about a potential partnership or sponsorship? You can contact the Unspookable team on our website at unspookable.com. Unspookable is part of the Soundsington Audio Network, committed to making quality programming for young audiences and the young at heart. For more information on our shows and the people behind them, go to www.soundsingtonmedia.com. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. 
So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now 